Well, good morning again. Thank you, Tom, for your report. Uh, we're thoroughly blessed by the Kazakhstan team and Ireland team and your report, and we look forward to the Czech Republic team going and hearing back from them what God has done uh, during their trip. Um, it's always a daunting task to come before the body of Christ and uh, attempt to preach the Word of God. Um, if you don't know, um, I was a, I'm a trained accountant. Uh, that's my trade. And one thing that the accounting job as an accountant is a very dicey job. When the company does well, you report, everybody's happy. But when the company doesn't do well, I go before the shareholders or the owners and say, don't kill the messenger. You know, <laughs> just reporting the news. And that's what I'm doing today. The, the message before me, the Word of God, is way beyond me. And I am not the man that lives up to the message, but I am along with you in the walk of, of our lives to, to walk accordingly in obedience. So the message that I give whenever I have the opportunity to is way beyond me. Therefore, I'm just compelled to uh, uh, pray before God, just come in humility before Him and allow, uh, allow God to bless our time. So let's pray one more time as we open up the Word of God together. God, we give You praise for what You have done in our lives, in the life of this church. You have blessed us in so many ways. We thank You for the reports of our admissions teams, how You have in small ways the work used members of Cornerstone and overseas opportunities. I pray that as we advance in years, that we would uh, just be open to your call. Just say yes to you, Lord, and be used by you. That we would continue to serve you and be stretched. That we would push the envelope of service where we have never thought that we would do these things. But Lord, we pray that you would open up our doors, open up our hearts to be willing servants to serve you. And I also pray for this time, um, the time in the Word. We pray that it will be a God-honoring time, that the saints will be uplifted and their hearts will be challenged through the words of God. May your God, uh, may your Word, God, uh, take root in the hearts of the saints here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one thing, it's kind of a funny thing. I'm almost... I, know, I was hesitating to admit this, but I didn't know how to begin the sermon. Is um, some people are particular about things. Some of you guys are really particular about your computers, you know, your notebook, and you want certain things on it. Some of you guys are really uh, particular about music, sound equipment. Some of you maybe cars, or I don't know, your basketball shoes. To uh, women, you know, sisters, you could be particular about all kinds of things, right? One thing I've <laughs> One thing I'm sort of uh, finicky about is uh, men's attire. Men's attire. Um, I'm sort of keen on this, and I, I pay attention to how I dress. You know, I went to, I noticed this, because I usually go, when I, I buy men's suits, I go in my work clothes, which is like you would see me today. I go buy clothes, and they, you know, when I buy something, they say, thank you, Mr. Hunt. Okay, and then I walk away. But recently I went in there after a workout to pick up something, and I was in my workout clothes, you know, this T-shirt, and it's kind of damp too, you know, and, and I go in there, the same place, same place. And, and he goes, and after he puts the thing together, he goes, thanks, man. So it was a two different response. I was the same person, same person, two complete different response by how one dresses. And I knew that... Um, that makes a little difference. So we all saw, well, or some of us may have seen, watched the Democratic National Convention this week. Now you see the Careys of the world and John Edwards, even you know other speakers. And it happens in the Republican National Convention. I'm not differentiating the two. It happens. You watch President Bush. You'll, they'll come in before public giving a speech. They're always, always. It doesn't hasn't failed in many many years. They'll come in a blue suit, dark blue suit with red or blue tie, or with white shirt. happens every time, because that that's, exudes power. That's the power suit. So when I go in meetings, I try to dress the same. 
And that's what you uh, try to do. And when James mentioned John MacArthur, John MacArthur, I respect him for a lot of things. But he's the same way. He, whoever dresses him, he dresses very impeccably, very powerfully before he stands in pulpit. He's, he's uh, um, really keen on his attire. I don't know if he does it, his wife does it, but somebody does it. He is that way. But I come to you this morning, not obviously not to talk about men's fashion, right? <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to waste your time that way. But how we are to clothe ourselves spiritually as Christians. Obviously, by external things, the world judges who we are, right? But spiritually, how does God judge us of who we are? Right? And I started on this passage because there's a couple of things I want to really point out on how we are to judge, dress ourselves before God and before fellow brothers and sisters. We see this in the epistle, just the background work, is that Paul is writing in the, in, from prison in Rome, and he obviously came across the news that he heard from the Colossians that they were being attacked by heresy. There was a group of obviously heretics or false teachers who fancied themselves um, in being intellectually or even theologically gifted, and they in turn twisted scripture for their own gain. And one of the greatest challenges they put forth, which I am sure Apostle Paul was appalled with, was number one, they question the deity of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. They even believed that the gospel message was too simplistic. The message of Christ was too easy in a sense. They said that they taught that Christ, depending on Christ, is good as you also promoted circumcision or other traditions. They emphasized mystical experiences, things beyond just Christ alone, the sufficiency of Him. It's in response. Paul does point to Christ alone, that that is the truth, that Christ was God, and Christ is sufficient. And he points to the greatness of Christ's position in this great epistle. We note that Paul's response in the earlier chapters of Colossians, defining Christology to clearly mark the character of the teachings of the false teachers, Paul points to the sufficiency of Christ, applying this great theological truth and the relationship, how that is to be applied in the church and how we are to conduct ourselves in, re- in relationships in light of Christ. That we see in chapter 1, Paul writes this, he says about Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, both in heavens and earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the church. He is the beginning, firstborn of the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. You know, these things are clearly marked out for Christ. These things are only true of Christ. There's no one else is the image, is the image of the invisible God or the firstborn of all creation. And it says clearly here, the fullness of God dwelled in him. And it's a marvelous text that no one else you, can you attribute these things to besides him. No one else is the head of the body, head of the church, other than him. These are absolutely, absolutely exclusive statements regarding our Lord. Paul makes it clear. So, Paul teaches this, and he comes to chapter 3. Then he talks about the putting off the old man, the previous man, man before Christ. And Paul writes this in chapter 3, verse 5. So put to death whatever in your nature belonged to earth, sexual immorality, impurity, shameful passions, evil desires, greed, 
which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming to the sons of disobedience. You've also lived your lives in this way one time, but when you used to live among them. But now, put off these things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you put off your old man with his practices. And be clothed with the new man that is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of the one who created it. So this is the, the replacement theory, right? Put off and put on. You know, it's like going on a diet. If you want to lose weight, the answer is not stop eating, right? The answer is not stop eating. So if you're a basketball coach, right? You have five guys on the team. One guy is playing awful. point is not to pull him out and play with four guys. That's not going to help. You have to replace him with someone else. So diet, you eat, I mean, you need to eat healthy, right? You need to replace the things you're eating and exercise. You have to, there's a counteraction that is involved. And the same thing spiritually. Once we live this way, but Paul is saying, in light of what has happened, all the sinful things that we dwelled in at one point, put off that, and here's what to put on. He literally uses the word clothe, and that's a very good word, or put on. I like the word clothe, because this is what you put on. This is what we are to be known by. Right? These are what to be, uh, it is the proof or evidence of the transformation that has been brought on by Christ. So that's what Paul instructs Colossians, to clothe yourselves. These are the qualities what believers are to be known by. Then he uses, uh, he opens this in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God. Now I love that word, the elect. He, Paul uses the word elect to define Christians. The elect of God, dear, holy and dear brethren. Clothe yourself. Okay. So I'm going to uh, focus on verses 13 and 14 today. I think there are two key articles of clothing that we need to that uh, we need to bear or wear is number one. First article of clothing as the elect of God is forbearance. It says forbearing of one another, forgiving one another. You know, Paul lists kindness. Compassion, humility, gentleness, patience. Now, these things are all the things that we need to bear with one another in Christian relationships. But forbearance, which encompasses this, means to endure, to hold, to hold out in spite of. And I think what is one of the greatest ways of showing forbearance is forgiveness as Christians. Now, obviously, forgiveness... It's not something that we do all the time. Offense has to be made in order for forgiveness to happen, right? Offense has to be made. So there are some limitations in the life of the believer, but it happens all the time. It's not a state, but it is the state of, of forgiving heart, a compassionate heart. Now people have more people have some people have more or less of compassion, some people are more kind, maybe more even humble, more gentle, more patient. But I think all of us all of us are challenged with the issue of forgiving. And we fight our depraved nature when the issue of forgiveness comes upon our lives. Now, forgiving is very difficult for every person, every believer, because we have been tainted by sin. But how much more does it reflect the character and nature of God than forgiving? Our whole basis of our relationship with God is based upon forgiveness, right? Whole redemptive history is based upon forgiveness. Right? It clearly reflects our relationship. It's a great quality of God. It's a fundamental Christian concept. So what is forgiveness? In definition, it is the act of setting someone free from obligation to you that is a result of wrong done against you. The Bible is clear. In many passages, Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave you. It is essential. Then the basis of forgiveness as opposed to the heretics in Colossians is Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.18. God reconciled to us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. God carried out justice through his son. And through him, that we are righteous. So in this perspective, with that perspective, what God has done, if we keep this perspective of thinking, thinking about how much it cost him to forgive, how much it cost him to forgive, that we should realize the transgressions that has been done against us and how much we should be forgiving. How much we should be forgiving. You know, how do, then how do we reconcile an unbelieving believer, unbelieving, un, unforgiving believer, unforgiving believer? How do you reconcile that? I believe it is sin. Why? Because what is the definition of sin? It is missing the mark. This is not what God wants us to do. To be unforgiving and in light of what Christ, God has done through Christ, giving so much, how can we not give so little? It is very difficult. We understand that. We're all depraved beings. But I think it's one of the greatest ways. You know, God has blessed Cornerstone with many things, and we have many faithful people serving in this church. But one great way, I'll give you a formula to destroy this church and this church decimated in, in a relatively short period of time is believers stop forgiving one another. Number one, clear way. When believers stop forgiving one another and they're not reconciled to one another, because in time we'll all offend one another, right? But that hap- it doesn't happen. It starts slowly eating away from inside. Therefore, unforgiving Christian is a contradiction in terms. It violates the direct command of God. You know, as a maybe someone who has been offended, but what is the value of having a victim mentality when you degrade Christ's church for yourself and you lose fellowship with God? When you're unforgiving, you lose fellowship with God. Are we justified in our bitterness and anger that much? We should ask ourselves that. Therefore, since the forgiveness reflects the character of God, unforgiveness reflects the ungodly nature of who we are, especially in light of what Christ did on the cross. It is an integral part of our lives and we have the obligation to forgive and forgiveness is required. We need to set set aside ourselves, our anger, our bitterness, and accept in grace but it, I know that doesn't come to fallen creatures very easy. We are easy to be driven by our feelings, by the offense that has been done to us. Why is it so hard? Because it is against our nature. It is against our sinful nature. Forgiveness doesn't come to a natural man. Forgiveness comes to a believer through the workings of the Holy Spirit. to the workings of the Holy Spirit in you. Forgiveness does not come in flesh. Forgiveness comes through the Spirit within us. Therefore, we should forgive as we gaze at Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to work within us. And that is one mark of, of a Christian and what we are to clothe ourselves. The new man must be characterized by forgiveness. Second, and I'll spend the rest of the time here, and I want to devote most of my time here. Second article of clothing, and this is very important. It is in verse 14. And to all these virtues, add love, which is perfect bond of unity. So are we to forbear or forgive one another? How can we get ourselves to forbear? As we gaze at Christ, we look to love. I don't know if, you know, I, I was a very young, a child, basically, like my son's age, in the 70s. In the 70s, I don't, those of you who are about my age or close to my age, remember this movie. Really cheesy movie, I think about it, I think about it back. 
You guys remember the movie or ever seen the movie Love Story with Ally McGraw and Ryan O'Neill? Now, what does Jennifer say to Oliver? One of the cheesiest lines in history of cinematography is, says, love means to never having to say I'm sorry. You know, I was about 10 years old when I heard that. It was cheesy then. I'm about 40 years old. It's still cheesy today. It is one of the, um, you know, things you come up and go, what does that mean? I was, I was 10, but I still ask that same question. So I go to a, I think, better man for that answer. I, with what John, Jonathan Edwards, a great, great preacher in the past century, to say what he says, true Christian love, uh, about true Christian love, he says, true Christian faith is which produces good works, but all good works which is produced are by love. Love goes into action. He also calls that the sum of all virtues, all virtues as we're Christians, humility, humbleness, gentleness, kindness, everything else culminates into love. And that's a beautiful picture. It is the basis of our salvation. It distinguishes Christians from others. It is the true fruit of the Spirit. Right? It heads the list in the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in First John, we, uh, Gary read that in um, Dave and Terry's wedding yesterday. First John 4. 4.7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for the love is from God, and everyone who is born of God knows God. And one who does not love does not know God, and God is love. That's one of the greatest simple statements in the Bible, right? God is love. And he says, our depth of our knowledge of our God is equated to our love. You say you know God, but we say to one another, where is your love? What we know doesn't matter unless we have love. Right? And it's a beautiful text. Says it, on verse 10, it says, In this love, not that we have loved God, but He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. That's a beautiful picture. That's the basis of love. He loved us first and He sent His Son. He took action, unilateral action on His part to redeem us. In verse 13 it says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us in His Spirit. There's a foundation of God's love. In verse 16 it says, God is love. God is love. You know, in terms of clothing, I would say love is like a belt or a big coat that covers everything. Like a belt, I say that because it holds up everything. Love is the basis for Christian relationships. Because the basis of relationship came from the basis of love that God has given us through Christ. Because love at its heart is sacrificial. One who loves, who wants to, who demonstrates true love is focused on others, not himself. It's others. His focus is on the welfare of the brethren, not in himself. Focus is selfless, not prideful. It is humble. It is the willingness to sacrifice for the good of another or to fill the need of someone else instead of satisfying your own. When your needs are not met, that's true love. That's true Christian love. True love does not want rewards or recognition, but the work itself is a reward to Him. True love does not want to or desire to be recognized by others through the actions, but the work itself, the doing, the action itself, is a reward, being able to do that. Because only the man who has been given life and understands that there's life in Christ can experience that or even come to that. So therefore, he's rich. Therefore, he acts on his love. That's a beautiful thing. One could find gratification in God knowing the work itself. The pain or toil, labor, whatever you're going through, to provide or sacrifice for others, 
That's the reward. He considers that the reward. Just the fact that he's able to do that. Because one, a natural man, a carnal man who has not experienced Christ, can't do that. Can't attempt to do that. Because whatever they do, maybe in, in a superficial way, but it is only that, superficial. They're not experiencing the true joy of the work. Right? You know, God's love through Christ demands love in Christian relationships. Our new position as new creatures presupposes that love to be practiced in the body of Christ, in the church. This is the key to building up a church. I just told you one way to uh, destroy a church. key to building up a church is overall, it's love. Love. We are intricately tied in together. One can't just love by himself. There's no object of love. There's no point, right? Love. How do we act upon that? It's to one another. And Apostle Paul points another great picture in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, Jonathan Swift, you know who Jonathan Swift is? The author of, maybe some of you have read it, Gulliver's Travel. And he wrote this, and interestingly, says, we have enough religion to make us hate one another, but not enough religion to cause us to love one another. He says, we, don't, we have enough lo- religion to make us hate one another, but we don't have enough religion to love one another. And this is sort of what Paul was addressing and saying to the Corinthians in the church of Corinth. And it's a condition of mod- many modern churches today. You know, this letter is one of Paul's, I think, greatest works. Among many, it's a beautiful picture, a literary marvel on love. There's none, none equal, the, the subject of love. It is sad to say that Paul describes the condition of the church in Corinthians. He lists all these things because I believe that these things were lacking. Paul addressed these because there were false teachers in Corinth as well. And is addressing many things, and ultimately is pointing at love or lack of love. You know, the Corinthian church had many things. Paul writes spiritual gifts, right doctrine, many good leaders, people serving. But what was clearly absent, and Paul devotes much of this chapter to it, is love. You know, John MacArthur says this it is easier to be orthodox than to be loving. Easier to be active in the church and working than love. In essence, Apostle Paul agrees. He says, whatever we do in church, whatever we do in ministry, whether we go to all corners of the earth serving Christ, it is meaningless without love. And Martin Luther said this about the teachers. There are many flock leaders, many of you teach as well as the elders, leaders. This is what he says. So the teachers who, have, who lacks love cannot himself understand anything he says, nor does he thereby improve his standing before God. He has much knowledge indeed, because he, but because he fails to place it in the service of love, far better he were dumb and devoid of eloquence if he but teach in love than to speak as an angel while seeking his own interests. If we don't teach we don't serve with love. If you're devoid of that, you're edifying yourself. That's what, in essence, what he's saying. Paul is saying, regardless how good of a teacher we are, how good of a servant we are, how good of a minister we are, no matter what we serve in whatever capacity, without love, it is all meaningless. Right theology, right doctrine is no substitute for love. Our ministries are no substitute for love. As we serve the body, as we serve the church in various ministries, we're serving. Why are we serving? We're not serving for Christ. A love for Christ. A love for the members you serve. Fellow brethren, fellow members of the body. That's a question we need to ask all ourselves. Is it motivated out of love? Or is it out of duty? 
John, John Kerry said this week, he says, I'm John Kerry and I'm reporting for duty. There's something he has to do. If it comes to the point in the church where service and ministry comes to something that we have to do as duty and is motivated by that, something that has to be done, but not out of love, it's, it's self-serving. Supreme characteristic that God demands in His people is love. It is the heartbeat of the church. It's the lifeblood of the church. Right? Lifeblood of the church. In the modern day, in the modern business this day, is what is the lifeblood of a business, they say? Is they say it's cash flow. Right? Many businesses who are profitable go under because they don't have the cash to pay. It's the lifeblood. The lifeblood of the church is love. On the surface, we may do well, but if there's not true love based upon Christ in relationships, it'll die. It'll, it'll be a matter of time before it's degraded away. It is, love is vital for the circulatory system of a spiritual well-being of the church. God must be glorified through the love of brethren in our relationships, members of the body. You know, it is interesting, this word love throughout 1 Corinthians and also in the Colossians passage is agape. You know, some translations will say charity, but the, the true trans- translation is love. It's reference to divine love. In John 3.16, the same word is used. This love, divine love, is sacrificial for the sake of others. Even when others may hate us, against us, do ill against us, but love endures. That's the basis of which God has sent the Son, and the God um, sent the Son in Christ. The basis that we learned a few weeks ago of Christ washing the feet of the disciples. Now imagine that, you know, Christ washed the feet of the disciples and Judas was included in that group. Christ knew this man was going to betray him a few moments later. That is the expression of love regardless of what has been done to us or what will be done to us in this case, love endures. It shows that God loves all men. God loves all men. And this agape love is a trademark of disciples of Christ and believers. You know, it's difficult to fathom that that, that we are capable of this type of love but only through the Holy Spirit, just like forgiveness, through the Holy Spirit that we can display and we can enact about this type of love. Because our job, because within ourselves, we have no power. Right? It is like the sun and the moon. Without the sun, moon really reflects nothing. Right? Absolutely nothing. It is just another piece of rock orbiting the earth. But through the sun, on a bright day, or bright evening, like last night, a full moon, it reflects something. It is a reflection of the sun. In essence, we are to be the reflection of the sun. And we are capable because the, the light that comes from Christ is greater and we can reflect that love, the light of love that is in Christ. In verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, Paul says the greatest of these is love. There's a supremacy of love. You know, we know that love alone cannot atone for our sins. Nothing can do that unless the blood of Christ and our faith. We cannot assume that love can exist independently of faith. But Paul's statement that love is greater than faith and hope is an expression of permanence 
and eternality and the duration from beginning to the end of God's love. Now, Paul points out these things, but he doesn't clearly point out why he says love is the greatest. But we could make some conclusions. Because what is the, again, the basis of love is God through the Son, right? Love existed from eternity prior to eternity past. Love will exist forever. It is love that chose us, and the love between God and the Son existed, and it will exist throughout eternity. In time and eternity, the concept of biblical love will remain as the marvelous foundation of divine and human relationships. It, is, it will endure the longest. It is truly eternal. Because faith, let's take faith for instance. Faith, I think once we get to heaven, faith has been realized. Right? You'll see Christ himself. Right? Eternity prior, well, faith didn't exist. Faith came through Christ. Even hope, you know, once we get to heaven, when we are before Christ in a glorified state, our hope is realized. There's no need to hope at that point. There's no need to hope at that point. We have realized our destination. We have come to our point. The only thing that will endure at that point, our love for Christ and love for one another will still exist. In a simple, simple way that I view this. Love went to war. Love has come from the beginning to the end. The hope and faith came through Christ. This is why I believe Paul says this, that love will endure the ages of history and eternity. Actually, then we could say that heaven is the home for love. Right? True, true inhabitants of of heaven will be full of love. One ticket to heaven is love through Christ. So I want to just leave with you with five traits. Quickly go through these. Five traits of a loving person. Number one, this is easy, is humility. Who is the model again? Christ. Humility is one of the excellencies of Christ. It is a hallmark of the gospel. You know, very little problems occur when people are humble. You know, why do we feel pride? Because we feel worthy. Why do we feel worth? Because we compare ourselves. We value our worth comparing to others, other created beings. So how can we feel humble? We just compare ourselves to God. The Christ that has been given. His having the sense of nothingness before Him. And you won't feel pride. We won't feel pride that way. You know, very existence of what, where we have came from. The existence of our sinfulness, our depravity. And the understanding the holiness of God is the basis of our humility. That we must be humble in order to be a loving person. Number two, making, make sacrifices. I've touched on this before. Loving others is not a question of patting someone on the back, good job, or praising them. Rather, it's sacrificing for others. Often, it costs something. It may cost you, maybe you have your pride. It may cost you many things. But in Matthew 5, it says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. Again, I point you to Jesus washing the feet of Judas at that moment. Jesus still served him. Love is a joyful desire to look out for others. And it may require our possessions, our time, maybe even our lives, but loves, true love, sacrifices. Third characteristic, third trait is one who loves is lacks self-esteem. In the current culture, it seems that one of the highest goals of daily experience is for people to feel good about themselves. To realize the self-image 
of high view of oneself. You know, my, many psychologists tell tells us that the cure to all society's ills is through more dosage of of self-esteem, self-worth, self-acceptance, self-love. You know, a few years ago, the state of California created a task force to promote self-esteem and personal development. We would encourage social responsibilities and a group of professors to seek um, to seek this were put together. They examined major social problems and practices and related that to self-esteem. Many psycho- psychologists promised that the cures of society's ills were lack of these things. And they looked at self-esteem in light. These are eight professors from the University of California system. Eight professors took the, looked at these six issues in light of self-esteem, like crime and violence, alcohol and drug abuse, welfare, teenage pregnancy, child or spousal abuse, and delinquency of children in schools. And the results actually is published in a book title called The Social Importance of Self-Esteem. This study found that there weren't any causes or effects that linked to low self-esteem and um, problem behavior. Actually, some subsequent studies to this rather said there's definite relationship with violent behavior with high self-esteem. How, do we, how are we to accept this? How are we to decide this? Let's look to the Bible. Let's just look, at to, look to how high of an esteem biblical characters have of themselves. Isaiah, in Isaiah 6.5 says, Woe is me. And Job, Job says, when he cried out in Job 42, Wherefore I despise myself and repent in the dust and ashes. What did John the Baptist say? Right? He must increase. I, I must decrease. Paul said what? Sufficient of, the, of ourselves to think anything of, as of ourselves but in the sufficiency of God. Even Christ said this. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me. I, I conclude that self-esteem has nothing to do with anything. Those we have self-esteem as a loving person we need to not find value in ourselves. We'll never sacrifice and love others. That self-esteem is not being aware of one's abilities or one's greatness. The right view. These are all humanistic ideas. The right view is self-esteem that comes to recognize one's position in Christ and who we are as simple creatures that have been given grace. If anything, we should have Christ's esteem, never self-esteem. We need to remove ourselves from the picture in order to love. Because the object is not you. object is the, the recipient. Number four, going through quickly, is... Always truthful. Being truthful to people around us. Believers and unbelievers alike even. You know, love of the Bible does not consist of never disapproving anybody's conduct. Love stands up against unrighteousness. Love is not soft on sin. Love does not mean you have to embrace everything. We are not to rejoice or accept unrighteousness. It's a delusion that some Christians have. They never condemn anything or anyone, or say anything to say um, to anyone that they are wrong, whatever they may do. You do that to a child, and they're on a path of destruction. We know that our Lord the most loving man that ever walked on the face of this earth, did not wear a mask of pretense. Especially in the midst of wickedness and unrighteousness. Our Master never flattered sinners, but confronted sin. He never walked away from 
exposing wickedness for its true colors, He called them by the right name. He confronted them. He condemned them. To throw a veil over sin and to refuse to call things by their right names, their unrighteousness, that's a heart that is flatly unbiblical. This type of tolerance is not based upon true love. To shut or turn your eyes or turn your face in the face of immorality, for the sake of tolerance, it's not scriptural love. To say that we are all equally right in our opinions, if their opinions flatly contradict scripture, and tolerate that, it's not biblical love. It's not one that God would have us give. Could love like this pours contempt on God? It goes against the written test of truth. True love does not think everybody has the right doctrine. True love says in Second John one ten, do not believe in every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God, because many prophets. False prophets have gone out into the world. You know, one thing I just share with you personal, this is on a personal level. My years of ministry, one thing I regret, more things I often more regret, not confronting people soon enough than giving people too much time. And it's difficult to confront people. No one likes to be confronted, right? You know, my wife confronts me. James confronts me. People confront me. But it's, it is hard. But it is good for the soul, right? When a man or woman of God comes to you in love and confronts you of your shortcomings or your weaknesses, you may not like it at that time. It may hurt. But if you meditate upon it, it's a great thing because it enhances my walk with Him, Right? Confront my weaknesses. Confront my sins. That's how you purify the church. That's another way. The love builds up a church by godly confrontation of one another in love. The leaders of this church, we desire to live a transparent life. We respect people who confront us. That doesn't mean that you line up after church and start confronting me one by one. Take number for Bob. But... Truly, in a godly and a loving way, to confront one another, it purifies your soul, our soul, and purifies the church. It's a beautiful thing. You know, one of my younger days, my boss, one of my supervisors says, we're given a review, and he says, I want to talk about your weaknesses. Wow, and I was about maybe, I don't know, early 30s. I was about to throw him down. I was angry. I was angry to someone to tell me that. You know, we often have that same initial reaction. Anger comes in these things. That in the context, that is in the context of non-Christians, but Christians, we, when we come into love, because the object is to honor Christ. Object is different than in a work situation. Right? As members of the body of Christ, we need to be truthful, because we need to love one another. You know, what is fear of confronting man? When you contemplate whether I should come out, what do we learn a month or so ago? We do not fear man. Okay? We, all, we fear dishonoring Christ. We fear that this church, the body we belong to, dishonors Christ. That's what we fear. We need to overcome this for the sake of for the sanctification of this corporate church as individuals as well. A true love, true display of love is shown through being truthful to one another mutually for mutual sanctification sake as individuals and corporate. And lastly, loves, love values unity. Love pres- preserves unity. It says in verse 14, 
It says love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Ephesians 4.3 Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. This preservation of unity is not just organizational unity. It's not to fill the seats in the church. What Paul is referring to is the spirit of all true believers. Which are bound by one another. We are to strive against, in a negative sense, we are to strive against, defend against divisions. You know, we are all baptized into one body. We have to see ourselves as no longer the center of the universe. As long as ourselves are the center of the universe, the love is not going to go forward. We can't put our feelings, our prestige, or being right as our being chief concern. Number one concern is unity. First Corinthians 1.10, Paul sums it up. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there's no divisions among you, but you may be complete in the same mind and same judgment. You know, testimony of unity in the church is one of the most powerful testimony that we could give to this world. As united believers. And they always say, oh, this country united, one country united under God. United we stand. But truly, beyond rhetoric, this has to be the truth in church. The church may have great leaders, beautiful buildings, but without unity and love, does not honor Christ. And one of the major objectives of the leaders of the church is to maintain unity. Not just for the unity's sake. We need to say we have to stand on the right things, but our self motivations, ourselves, don't become the hindrance or the roadblock to that unity. Our self will desires doesn't become the barrier to that unity. That we forego our interests for the sake of unity. There are hills to die on. Yes. That's the reason why we started Cornerstone Bible Church. Probably the first time that we exercise division in a church is to stand up for the right things, scriptural things. Those are the hills to die on. But other things, our personally motivated desires should not be in the forefront of our agenda. Therefore, we need to be oneness. We need to exercise oneness and pull together as one body, as we are doing today, instead of pulling apart and isolating ourselves. You know, people who are bitter, anger, who causes divisions, are people who isolate themselves. You know, a lonely Christian is a dangerous Christian. A lonely Christian is a dangerous Christian. An only believer is a dangerous man. A man given to his own thoughts and his desires without shepherding and accountability in the fellowship of other believers eventually be given to himself. And one who is given to himself is led to sin. Right? You ever think about yourself when you're bitter or angry at someone or a group of people or maybe even at church? You're all alone in your thoughts in your room. And that goes on for one night, two nights, for a week, for a month. That man is dangerous. I don't trust myself when I'm angry. I don't trust myself when I'm bitter and given to my own wild thoughts. I have no accountability for my sinfulness there. That man can be a factious man, a divisive man, creates divisions. Love preserves unity and harmony. At the core, we are not the center. Christ is at the center. Christ says in verse 14, love is the perfect bond of unity. Love is that glue that holds the church together.
Just a few final thoughts. Just a few final thoughts. Again, just as a reminder, as Apostle Paul said, that some may have knowledge, some may have gifts, some may serve, are excellent servants, who can defend your faith, who can marvelously share the gospel, who serves endlessly and tirelessly. But remember, knowledge that it's barren of love is useless. You know, when newcomers come to our church, we often hear, and these are true things, I think, in my biased view, is that, you know, we say, the teaching and doctrine here is solid. This is why I want to come to church. And that's a good thing to do. Good thing to uh, evaluate the church. You know, I pray, and this is my hope, this is my personal hope, is that I hope that people would come for the teaching and doctrine. But I hope people would stay at Cornerstone for the love of the body. Loving people is not easy. It's very, very difficult when a bunch of sinners come together only because of Christ to come together and try to love one another. I know it's a struggle, right? But it's only done through the Holy Spirit. But I say this to you this morning, is that let's struggle to that end together, to love one another together. It is my prayer that God willing that members would love one another and join together to commit it to loving one another for Christ and His sake. I desire all ministry at Cornerstone to be based on that love. You know, James shared um, the quote of leaving a legacy for the future generation. Is that the children that grow up in this church would find us faithful in that love. They would see their parents who loved one another, loved the brethren. For not our sake, for the church, for the body, and ultimately for Christ. I pray that we will leave that legacy together for God's glory. Let's pray. God, we truly give you grace and thanks and for the grace that you have given us. The example of the greatest love that has, has known to man throughout history, through eternity to eternity. We see the love for your son and love for your people. The chosen elect were chosen begin, before the beginning of time. That you loved us so much that you sent your son to sacrifice through call to the elect to yourself and redeem them according to your will. You have given us your love. You have given us the model and the basis for the love which are, we are to have. I pray that is that you would help us in the endeavor to exemplify the love of God and that we would fight and struggle together to be committed to loving one another in this church. That we would make it a lifelong fight to spur each other on to do it together. To the basis for all preaching, teaching, all ministry and service and activities in the church would be based upon that. I pray that, that we would be faithful to the cause to love Christ and to love others. That we would be marked by that. That this is the very spiritual clothing we would wear day in and day out. And we know all this, God. We can't do it ourselves. That we have no means as depraved creatures to come to you in this way except to rely you, rely on the Holy Spirit to work the love, the work of love through us. I pray that we would walk in the Spirit, then the world would see 
Cornerstone Bible Church to the love that we have for one another and the reflection of the love of Christ that has been given to us. We give you praise, God. In your son's precious name.